Welcome to the Empire Files podcast. I'm Abby Martin. Today I'm happy to talk to my friend and colleague Paul J. I always appreciate Paul's insight and analysis, which you can get all the time at his new site, theanalysis.news. Paul, thank you so much for joining me on the Empire Files podcast. Thanks very much, Abby. I want to move on to climate change and the nuclear uh, doomsday, your conversations with Ellsberg. But let's wrap this up by just quickly commenting on something that you just mentioned. Um, you know, of course, we could talk all day about the, the war on terror, the lack of accountability, the fact that the media is completely uh, manufacturing this outrage over women in Afghanistan. Hmm, where's the last time you heard that? Oh, yeah, the fucking lead up to the invasion of Afghanistan. All of a sudden they were they went dark for 20 years and now they're back, baby, with all the concern about women only when the U.S. is slated to leave. But, Paul, you just mentioned 9-11 and I can't help but bring this up uh, before we move on, because this was the initial reason why we are in this mess. I mean, I mean, we don't have to belabor that point, but I mean, we are coming up on the 20 year anniversary and we still don't have hard answers to why there was the biggest intelligence failure of our lifetime, why everyone involved got promoted, why it's still being exploited to embark on a worldwide fight against terrorism, even though terrorism only increases exponentially as a result of these policies. Well, I don't think it was the biggest intelligence failure of all time because I don't think there was any intelligence failure at all. I think uh, I think the I, I'm persuaded that there's without you know I can't hold a congressional committee and subpoena people. So, but based on what information is in the public domain and my interviews with people who really know stuff, and I'm talking about people like Bob Graham and Thomas Drake, who was at the NSA and others, I am persuaded, convinced, really, uh, that it was, it, was, it was by design, and I mean Dick Cheney, mm -hmm. who created a parallel uh, reporting track for the intelligence agencies. He, he created silos, so the FBI didn't talk to the CIA, and the NSA didn't talk to them. They were supposed to report to Richard Clark, who was the anti-terrorism czar. Well, what is the first thing, and I can talk about this for our whole hour, so we can, I'll, I'll try to be brief, <laughs> but um, George Tenet, the head of the CIA, in the first national security briefing to George Bush and Cheney's there, tells them the number one threat to American national security is bin Laden and Al-Qaeda. And Tenet said that at, in public at the 9-11 committee hearing. So I, it's not some secret thing here. And what do they do a few weeks later? They demote Richard Clark, who was the anti-terrorism czar, who had cabinet-level authority, which meant he could call a meeting of the principals, which is the heads of agencies and the undersecretaries of all the various departments of the government. He had the authority to call that meeting himself if he thought it was necessary. He gets demoted, and now he has to report to Condoleezza Rice. Now, how do you do that? Why on earth, if you've just been told by the head of CIA that Al-Qaeda is your number one threat, how the hell do you demote uh, your anti-terrorism czar? If you don't like Clark, fire the guy and put someone else there, but how do you demote the position? And that's how they begin 
this this plan. Um, and I do believe this comes out of the gang, who most of uh, Bush's foreign policy people were signatories to the uh, Project for New American Century and that document they created with the famous line, you know, the Vietnam syndrome, people, Americans won't put up with another war, only another Pearl Harbor would get such and such going. Um, well, they got their Pearl Harbor, and I, I don't think... And I uh, let me put it this way. I don't see any evidence they organized this attack. I think there's evidence they became aware of the attack. And I think the way they became aware of it is more than likely through the uh, Saudi ambassador uh, to the United States, Bandar, who was nicknamed Bandar Bush. He was so close to the Bush family. Um, and, 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 and they're told something's coming. I have no no evidence they knew what that something was, and and it's almost irrelevant. But let's assume they didn't, because there's no evidence they did. Um, but they knew something was coming. And uh, in fact, there was just something recently in one of these books that just came out uh, about 9-11 in the period that Bush was told that uh, a few days ahead of 9-11 that an attack was coming and ignored it. Um, just quickly to jump to one of the things I think that's gotten almost no coverage at all, Bob Graham, when I said to him, did Bush and Cheney deliberately create a culture within the intelligence agencies of not wanting to know about terrorist attacks, not organizing about it, of disorganization? And he said to me, yes. But it's more than that. And I'm going to play this again in a, you know, a couple of weeks on the anniversary. I'm going to replay all my interviews. He said they, they, there are things they did that proactively facilitated it. And one of the examples was that in the famous memo, Bin Laden plans to attack America, that Condoleezza Rice is grilled about at the 9-11 committee hearings, and she says, oh, we thought it was a historical document, a just ridiculous thing, because the CIA had just alerted them to it. And uh, Graham told me, in the normal course of events, after there's a presidential briefing, um, within a day or two, if there's anything in that briefing, it goes out in another briefing called the principal's briefing, which goes to head of agencies and undersecretaries and so on. So if they have to take measures, action, like the FAA putting security on alert, uh, uh, that it would go out in the principal's briefing. Well, Graham told me that this Bin Laden memo was omitted from the principal briefing that came out two or three days after they got the CIA briefing. And I said, well, how do you explain it? He says, the only explanation, he said, is someone looked at it and deliberately, consciously decided not to release it to the principals. Huh. And, and Graham said to him and his investigators and his committee, that was a, a, an example of, of more than passive facilitation, active facilitation. And, and I, as I said, I can go on about this because there's other examples. So, so I don't think 9-11 was a failure of intelligence. I think it was by design. There was keystone cops, but by design. Yes, the intelligence agencies were tripping all over each other. And when they found the cell in California, the CIA didn't tell the FBI and the FBI didn't tell the CIA. I mean, it goes on and on. 
but by design. I couldn't um, agree and, more. And all about the invasion of Iraq. And the invasion of Iraq was, was part of the vision of the project for New American Century because the real objective always was regime change in Iran. Iraq was a step. Then they were going to overthrow the uh, government of Syria. And all of this is going to lead up to uh, an attack on Iran and regime change in Iran. And, and that was always the plan. And, and 9-11, unless there's some evidence out there that I haven't seen and, and it, you know, it's possible, that's the story of 9-11, that it was all part of, uh, of a process that would lead to the assertion of American hegemony in an area they had lost control of. Iraq and Syria and Iran, and especially Iran. Uh, so that, to me, is the real story of 9-11. Yeah, I mean, that was the catalyzing event that they needed. And it is spelled out in the document, Paul, in a kind of ominous, eerie way, considering that they got exactly what they were calling for and then were able to, quote, rebuild America's defenses, which they would not have been able to do without that new Pearl Harbor. You know, there's so many warnings too. I mean, we don't need to really okay, can get into I, this. Just one, quick, one quickly, one thing. I think what you just said is really important. It wasn't just about the regime change. It was about massive new expenditures mm-hmm. on in the arms complex. And, and they needed that, that to do that too. So what you just said is very important. Yeah. And I mean, there were so many warnings coming from so many different intelligence agencies. At, at some point, you really have to be completely blind to think that everyone that was being warned firsthand by these people just ignored it completely for no reason. I mean, it just doesn't make sense, Paul. I mean, Bush was reportedly even sleeping on an aircraft carrier um, days before because the warnings were so dire. So, yeah. I, I mean, it's it's absurd every way you look at it. We I could talk about this all day as well, but I think you summed it up pretty well that at the very least, I think that, um, you know, the government let this happen. And, and, and the callous disregard for human life that they knew would come really says it all. Wanted to just quickly get your comment on just Canada's role in the Afghanistan <laughs> war, because we don't really talk about that. People think, oh, Canada has peacekeeping troops around the world. And I mean, you are Canadian. You have been doing political media coverage in Canada for your entire life, pretty much. I mean, can you briefly talk about what Canada's interests are there and the role the country plays in relation to the U.S. empire? I had a, I interviewed a Canadian general, uh, Louis McKenzie, way back in 2000 and late 2001 or something. And no, I'm sorry, sorry. It was, it was later. It was after the invasion of Iraq. So this would have been 2003, 2004. And Canada on the whole, didn't join the invasion of Iraq. And to a large extent, Canadian public opinion was so against it, especially in Quebec, where the Liberal Party, uh, Jean Chrétien was the prime minister, and they were very, very concerned about losing seats in Quebec. And honestly, if it had been just English Canada, Canada probably would have gone to war in Iraq with the U.S. But Quebec was so against it. And Quebec has a real tradition against uh, military intervention, and they, they even opposed the draft in World War One in Quebec. And uh, so, Chrétien kept on the whole. I, when I say on the whole, there was some Canadians on some American boats here and there, but on the whole, Ra- Canadians didn't go into Iraq. 
so when Afghanistan, when 9-11 took place and the invasion of Afghanistan um, had taken place, the uh, war starts developing. Um, Canada stayed in by around 2003. Canada didn't do that much in Afghanistan early on. But after Iraq, um, there's enormous pressure by the U.S. for Canada to get in on the, on the deal in Afghanistan. And so I guess it's around 03, 04, um, Canada starts sending large numbers of troops into Afghanistan, large in Canadian terms anyway. So I asked the general, I said, you know, we didn't go into Iraq, really. Why did we go into Afghanistan? And he said, he said, have you looked at the, the size of Canadian American trade and how dependent Canada is on the U.S. markets? Hmm. And he said, we went to Afghanistan because we had to prove to the Americans we, for the rela relationship, the trading relationship we have, we're willing, and this is a quote from him, to pay in blood. Oh, my God. We have to be willing to lose some soldiers in an American war, or we might suffer some consequences, and that the Americans were very pissed off about Iraq, and we had to prove our loyalty. So I think Canada went into Afghanistan for almost no other reason than to prove loyalty to the empire, to uh, you know maintain its its role as a junior partner in the empire. Uh, now I, I don't want I know we can't get into all that, this now, but Canada plays a diabolical role in the Caribbean and Latin America. And I mean, it's a subject for another conversation, but Canada uh, has for years cooperated with attempting to support the opposition in Venezuela, uh, in Bolivia, in Honduras. Uh, I mean, Canada has played an absolutely despicable role supporting coups and right wing dictators and you name it. So, you know, nice guy Canada is, you know, it's really a bunch of bullshit. But when it comes to Afghanistan, I don't know that there was anything other than what I said, because mm -hmm. I don't see how they got anything else out of it. Yeah, you're totally right. There's always the junior collaborators that go and legitimize people like Juan Guaido immediately, you know, at the behest of, of the U.S. And it definitely should be the subject of a series of talks that you give, certainly, definitely a future podcast in its entirety, Paul, let's move on to climate change, though, because you this is another subject that you've extensively covered on your project, The Analysis, as well as your former project, The Real News Network. Um, let's talk about your recent interview with the co-author of the new IPCC report um, that calls this code red for humanity. Uh, I guess give us your takeaway from your discussion with this guy. <laughs> <laughs> Well, what do you say? I mean, I, at the very end of the interview, I said, you know, if American policy doesn't get serious, because, uh, you, know, you know, compared to Trump, Biden's look good, but compared to what's needed, mm -hmm. Biden's strategy is not going to meet any of the stated targets, uh, yeah. especially the reliance on carbon capture and, and new tech and all this. Um, I, I said, well, but... What do you think of the possibilities of the of 
the Americans actually, you know, dealing with this with some seriousness. And and this guy works for the Canadian government, right? So what he what he said was I wasn't expecting. He said, "How can you expect a country that can't deal with a pandemic to deal with climate?" Mm. Um, his partner, who co- he was the lead co lead author of Chapter Eleven, his co-lead author of chapter 11 who i believe is swiss or something she was quoted when the report came out saying that she doesn't know if she'll ever participate in another ipcc report again because she said what's the point nobody does anything she says it's not a good use of scientists time wow to to issue these reports when they essentially get ignored um the the yeah well this is the problem is how do you talk about this in a real truthful way and not sound depressing um the the biggest problem of all and this is of course doesn't just relate to climate but uh, but uh, as as climate is without question for me the number one thing we have to focus on and then everything else has to be in the context of that. But the, the, the popular movement in the United States, and I have to say in most other countries too, certainly Canada, in fact, if anything, there's more of a popular movement in the U.S. than there is in Canada. Um, one, to the extent it exists, is not very focused on climate. It's very siloed into all kinds of issues. So, you know, there's an environmental movement but all the other kinds of movements and issues that people take up, and, and they're legitimate, but they don't also connect to climate. So it's not like there's this building wide popular movement around climate. Um, the other thing is, uh, there's an interesting thing. Uh, uh, Jane McAlevey, who's a longtime union organizer and trainer of union organizers, she talks about activism and she says there's advocacy where people ad, are advocates for an issue and they go online and they spread information, and they have petitions, they may even get people to vote, sort of. But that's not organizing. And she says, then there's organizing. And organizing is when you go into a specific factory or a specific community and you li- literally get people to join an organization, whether it's a union or a community organization. And she, she talks about like in in unions full worker organization which means if you're organizing a plant you figure out what church do people go to and you organize at that church you you figure out where they do their recreation and the clubs and what we're missing and i'm not saying it doesn't exist it's just not on a scale that we need so urgently is that kind of organizing um, connected with what you do, what I do, but but what you and I do and other media platforms do, it, it's never going to be a substitute for that actual knocking on doors and organizing and not just knocking on doors to get people to vote, although even that is important because you can see where people got elected, progressives are getting elected. It has more to do with knocking on doors than the internet. But there's no gravity, there's no national center and a popular movement that organizes and, and organizes especially demands like, and this, if, you, if there's one thing that the Biden administration frustrates me, pisses me off more than anything, 
And of course, there's a long list of things that you could say are frustrating, anger making and all the rest. But I don't get that angry because I didn't have high expectations in the beginning. But why aren't they promising fossil fuel workers in all the areas where there are fossil fuel industries, economies? And that's mostly where the Republicans and Trump is strong. Why aren't they promising everybody to keep their wages intact? And when we phase out fossil fuel and, and transition quickly to sustainable energy, you won't lose a penny of wages. You know, we can, you know, Bob Poland priced it out. Uh, he, he, I believe the number was $2 billion would pay every fossil fuel worker the wages they're making now for three years. So you could promise six years for $4 billion. They're throwing hundreds, one, one Ford-class aircraft Yeah, I was going to say, just a couple days of the war in Afghanistan, just, just save that money and give it to these workers. And then, and then, one, it would politically help you in all the states that are voting Republican. Okay. It would get momentum behind quickly phasing out uh, fossil fuels. Why aren't they doing it? There's only one answer. There is that... The buy, that would mean you're getting serious about phasing out fossil fuels and you'll piss off the fossil fuel companies. I mean, where is and the, the urgency are here? Too, uh, where the fuck is the urgency? And I feel like it's almost the same fuel. problem with the pandemic is that the disinformation war has really taken root, Paul, in so many districts and cities across the country where it does seem like it's almost the more dominant narrative. That climate change is not real. It's not a threat. It's not happening. It's fascinating. I mean, the kind of the same thing with COVID. And how can we possibly galvanize and organize? I mean, of course, that is the answer. And it is about directly mobilizing working class people and political education. But it's like, it does seem very daunting when you are dealing with such entrenched propaganda coming from either conspiracism or just right wing media circles that essentially profit off of fossil fuel uh, advertising and stuff like that yeah yeah no there's no question it's daunting the uh i think it, i think some of us and i include myself mm -hmm. overestimated what was possible through internet media as opposed to this kind of on the ground organizing of people because the the problem was is as successful as as if you look at even the most successful of internet progressive media, you know, whether it's a democracy now or others, and I, you know, you can critique them or not, but still they're, you know, in the realm of progressive media and they're relatively big compared to a lot of other progressive media and same thing in print. It's so marginal. I mean, most of Americans have never heard of Amy Goodman and democracy now. In fact, I, I'm quite sure if you get a poll, and I'm making up this number out of my rear end, but I'll bet wow. you 95 95% of Americans have never heard yeah. of Noam Chomsky. Yeah. Like, we all think everybody's heard of him. But I bet you most Americans never heard the name. Um, so, so to fight on that uh, with the media platforms as the primary means... We 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 overestimated what was possible, and 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 we and this need to be organizing in the working class and, uh, and certainly in the big cities, but also in the tr pro-Trump areas of the working class, um, on the ground, knocking mm. on doors, that kind of stuff. Now the problem is 
you know, how much time we really got. Uh, and uh, I don't know. I don't want to sound euphoric or rosy. So yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Look, I, I'll say that you don't have to worry about being depressing because we don't look at the world through rose-colored glasses on this show, Paul, as you know. I mean, you you helped us spearhead the Empire Files from the get-go. And so we we are what we like to call, as Carl Rove calls it, the reality-based community. So don't hold back, my friend. Well, I, I, you, know, if, uh, you know, I just turned 70. And uh, so I, I don't, I'm not entirely sure what I can do myself in this respect. But we need an army of people, uh, and, and, and there needs to be funding on a big scale to make this happen because they, you know, they need to be practically or if not full-time uh, organizers. And I think the focus should be to start with, uh, I mean, everybody should do it wherever they are, but I think there should be a specific fight in some small states that have Republican senators and try to knock off a place where the Democrats don't have a hope. And see if a progressive message, really progressive, can actually win mm-hmm. over people in a small Republican Senate race. I, I say small because it's just cheaper, but they have the same amount of voting clout. I mean, imagine in the Senate now, which is so even, even one or two. And I think I'm not one of these people that critiques Bernie. I, you know, given what's out there, it's it's it's, it's, it's better than anything else going. Um, and, and he has his weaknesses and faults and blind spots and all the rest of it, but still it's something, but imagine some, some really progressives that could actually hold some balance and power in the Senate and, and a small state where it doesn't cost so much to run with a real ground game of organizing. Uh, the other thing is the, uh, unionizing is critical. Uh, and I know there's some serious efforts going on at Amazon organizing. Um, and if, if there was to emerge uh, a real national uh, campaign to organize Amazon, I, I know there was a defeat, but there's, love, there's some critique about how it was run. But, uh, but, but one of the things that I, I don't think the left can, can, can afford and shouldn't give up on unions is that's the one place there actually is organized workers. There is some funding and money. Um, and, the, you know, there needs to be a class struggle in the unions because mu- much of the union leadership is, uh, you know, so uh, enmeshed with corporate Democrats. And one, because yeah. you know, they do so well themselves you know, they eat at Ruth Christie's and they eat steaks that are two feet thick. And, uh, but two, they don't they can't imagine any alternative. They think if you don't support corporate Dems, the Republicans get in. It's not without some truth. Anyway, our problem right now is there's no, where do you have this conversation where you can have a national strategy and, and, and develop kind of organizing? Um, and, and, and Yeah, I mean, we're kind of rudderless. You know, the Bernie movement fizzled out and now it's just kind of splintered. Um, and it, it is disheartening to see at least the online media space in terms of the progressive voices. It, it's difficult. Uh, Paul, but I couldn't agree more with you that the real battle and fight is not happening on Twitter. It's not happening on social media. It has to happen in these workplace environments. And I think that we cannot truly assess the responsibility that this country has and the solutions that are needed to happen to curb climate change without addressing militarism. You know, I mean, this is this is not just the U.S. This is omitted 
from all countries in the climate negotiations. Yeah, well, I mean, that's truly shocking. Yeah, I mean, you pointed out on your show, I think you did a whole episode on this, the, the number one carbon producer in the world is the American Armed Forces. And, um, you know, I, I, you know, I've been talking to Dan Ellsberg, and, and one of the things we talked about is the need to, uh, uh, he called it, you know, convert, uh, not just phase out fossil fuel and uh, phase in sustainable energy, but convert military production to green production. And it wouldn't take... Yeah, because all these military, really quickly, all these military vehicles, another thing that people don't talk about is all of them are built for fossil fuels. I mean, imagine replacing the arsenal of our military hardware, B-52 bombers, these fighter jets. I mean, all of this shit, we're not going to, we're, we're going to fucking slap solar panels on these things. I mean, these are all designed to, to run on oil, Paul. There's no incentive. Yeah, but this is where you get to organizing in the working class. Like you go into a place that's, that's making uh, arms and start, you know, talking to workers and organizing around converting the plant into making, you know, whether it's solar or windmill or uh, railroads or, you know, there was a, again, a moment where this could have been done, you know, when during the 07, 08 crash, when Obama came in and, uh, quote unquote rescue the auto industry there were auto workers at the time organized auto workers demanding calling don't just prop these companies up again use this quasi nationalization and turn the auto industry into an engine for a new green economy convert now and not not just about electric cars but even you know creating sustainable energy like windmills and that of course they didn't do that. Uh, I mean, you know, we're in a conundrum. I mean, we want to talk real. We're in a conundrum that the popular movement isn't strong enough to force the elites to do much. Certainly not in a position to take control of a national government. There might be an opportunity, maybe at a state level, to elect something. There's some interesting stuff going on in New York now with the number of progressives that are in the state legislature and even some of the city council. Um, uh, so we're going to also have to face a fact, and I don't know whether I'm about to say is how real it is possible. Some section of the elites have to wake up about this stuff because it's going to destroy their own system. The climate crisis will destroy global capitalism, even if they can make a lot of money during the destructive process you know they're not going to have global supply chains when millions and millions of people that live in the global south head north where's the global supply chain then and look at what the pandemic did to the global supply chains imagine that kind of disruption uh you know the global south within what uh, 20 years 30 years sections even sooner could become unlivable. You asked me about my interview with that IPCC guy. He said that, you know, like one of the, they looked at what happens at four degrees warming. And I said, well, why are you focusing on four? I mean, people are saying, you know, you got to stop it at two and all that. And he said, well, right. because the way we're going, we're not stopping it at two. And, right. and, and, right. and he didn't say this, but I, others have said it. If you start heading north of two, 
it becomes a qualitatively different process that you can't stop it. It's, you know, it starts. And, and right. one of his numbers was also chilling, which was the, as bad as the climate will be at 1.5, which we could be there within 10 to 15 years, and it will be really bad. The effects of, of the extreme climate double at two degrees and quadruple at three degrees. But something else happens between when you start getting into one, five, two, and three. They talk about, uh, and I can't remember the exact terminology, but there's events that could take place which could be so dramatic, it upends all the logic of the predictions of what happens at two, three, and four. It, gets, it could get so much worse. He uses the word, it would be unimaginable. And he says the only reason they didn't put a number on statistically the risk of that, they just don't have enough data to be able to say it in scientific terms. But he's quite confident that if one of these ev extreme events takes place, it becomes so catastrophic that you know, we could be looking at the end. Uh, I mean, I said this to him and he agreed with me. I said, we could be looking at the end of organized human life within a few decades. And he, I said, am I exaggerating? He said, no. I said, I said, is it possible within even 20, 10, 20, 30 years, most of American agriculture in, in the Western United States is a dust bowl? Am I exaggerating? He said, no. So where's the sense of urgency? And, and never mind amongst the elites, even in the left. You know, generally, where the hell's the sense of urgency? Um, and Paul, one of these events that you're saying, this hypothetical event that we can't, that, that is, quote, unimaginable right now, is that akin to, like, you know, the projections of, like, the methane being released from the ocean? I mean, any number of these things that we just see casually being written about as a potential catastrophic, cataclysmic thing uh, in the wake of, of the warming yeah, temperatures. Well, he that what he what mentioned is that here? the oceans yeah. have a capacity to eat a certain amount of carbon. And, I, and then he said something which I, don't, I didn't quite get, so I can't be too specific, but I'm, I'm going to figure it out. <laughs> There's a, the, one of the process by which oceans eat up carbon there's a there's a thing that can happen to the oceans, and there's indication it's starting to happen that would disrupt the oceans eating up carbon. And if this thing unfolds, then all the predictions uh, become are thrown out the window because then the issue of uh, catastrophic weather events uh, speeds up by decades. Uh, so, yeah, it could be methane from Arctic, Let's from Siberia and the Arctic. It could be the oceans. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's it just, it just, it, it boggles the mind how the elites, who we, at least now in rhetoric get the danger, are still so focused on bullshit. Uh, and it's it's in their nature, you know, they focus on money making. I mean, it, I, I can't wrap my mind around it, Paul. It is the biggest issue on the planet. Uh, it's validated by all the science that you need. I mean, the only thing I can wrap my mind around is just, it's just like kind of everything else. I mean, it's out of sight, out of mind, even though it isn't. You look out your window and you see climate change happening right now. But it's almost just that short-sighted profit-making that you just want to make super profits and you you just don't <laughs> give a fuck 
about what's going to happen 10, 20 years down the line. I can't wrap my mind around it because I have a fucking kid. You have kids. These people have children. I don't get I mean, it, Paul. Yeah. This is the planet. This should not be a political yeah, well, fucking issue. I mean, they're so used to being insulated from the consequences of crisis. They just, uh, you know, it, they live, uh, what uh, Rob Johnson, who knows a lot of these people, I, I asked him about this. He says, denial is comforting. And it's just right. easier to live in your bubble. And, uh, you know, there, it's not like there's no members of the elites that don't get the urgency, but they're in such a minority. Um, and, and the majority live in opulence and, and, and an orgy of profit making. There may, you know, one bright light here, and, and I haven't made up my mind what I think of China. Uh, you know, it is authoritarian. On the other hand, people's life, lives are getting better. Um, so I don't know. Uh, I, I really haven't made up my mind what I think uh, of, uh, exactly what China is. Uh, that being said, there's no comparison. The crimes the United States has committed around the world and what China's doing globally, you can't even compare the two things. It's apples and oranges. But the people I've talked to who have a pretty good handle on China, they say China is really serious about um, climate change and that they really focused on uh, uh, transforming the economy uh, and, and all the use of coal now, which China gets critiqued a lot for, and rightly so. But they really do, according to the people I'm talking to, have a real plan to use coal in a transitional way, and that they do plan on, on, on and they're already the world's leading producer of solar and wind energy. And, are, and only because of the Chinese has solar become affordable around the world. Maybe if the Chinese get even more focused and more serious, it will pressure the elites elsewhere mm -hmm. that they're going to lose the climate change battle. If you want to worry about your rival, if your rival is really streaking out ahead of you on climate stuff, maybe it will pressure them to wake up. I, I don't know. I mean... I guess Dan Ellsberg has a good line about atomic weapons, which we haven't even talked about. Let's not. It's gloomy enough, this conversation. But at some point, we yeah, should. Dan, Dan says, uh, you have to act like you're on the Titanic, and there is still time to turn away from the iceberg. It's true. I mean, we can't give up now, Paul. I, I do have optimism. We have to face reality, and we have to do everything that we can to try to change where we're headed right now, which is flying off of a cliff. You know, I think that to a large extent, this fear mongering about China is completely invented. Five, 10 years ago, no one talked about China, really. Um, it was all about Russia. And now this, you know, and I don't even think it's COVID that's seeding the paranoia and fear. I think it really is just being planted by the corporate media. Um, there's no reason to fear China. There's no reason to think that China is a threat to us. And it's time in the in, facing this urgent issue to cooperate and collaborate with China to do everything that we possibly can to try to mitigate this, uh, Paul. I couldn't agree more with you. 
And it's just unfortunate that the elites at the helm are, are essentially doing the opposite, posturing for war, drafting all these plans to basically say, no, we not only need to build up uh, militarily to surround China, but also, hey, hell, while, while we're at it, why don't we modernize our nuclear arsenal and throw a fucking trillion more dollars at that? I mean, it's, it's complete and utter madness. It's lunacy. It needs to end. Let's wrap this up. I've kept you on the phone long enough. I know you're on the East Coast here. So, Paul, um, we're going to have to pick this up later and talk more about your incredible conversation with Daniel Ellsberg, um, more about what you're doing. You have this project called The Analysis. You are an incredible journalist. You've been in the game for decades. You have several documentaries under your belt. Everyone should check out The Analysis because it's not just you interviewing people. I mean, you, as people have just heard themselves, like you have so much knowledge and you've investigated so many topics over the course of your life and just these incredible interviews that you you really, really get to the core of so much with an incredibly astute political analysis. Everyone check out the analysis. Please subscribe to Paul's mailing list. Paul, let's wrap this up. You, uh, you've actually been censored by YouTube. I mean, this is a big problem with new media, right? This is really hard. Here we are trying to pave a way in this alternative media structure. We have very limited capacity to do so. We have very minimal audience reach. Uh, You know, Noam Chomsky aside, I I can't tell you how little people in the country have heard of either of us. So, I don't even have a question here, but I guess just talk about what just happened with your content on YouTube. How can people can find your work? And I guess, where do you see this going given the big tech uh, censorship that's just constantly increasing? Well, I'll try to do it quickly. First of all, you can find find it at theanalysis.news. That's the URL. Uh, yeah, YouTube took down three of our videos, uh, one on a report I did on the events on Capitol Hill on January 6th, where I included some footage of Trump speaking to the crowd to show how he incited the crowd not to support his claims of fraudulent elections. That was deleted, and I got a warning. Uh, Then they took down uh, a video where I took out the Trump video and did another analysis where I talked about how, the, I, and I do believe, there was an attempted coup by Trump and some of his allies. And January 6th was supposed to be the final act of that coup, and it never went anywhere. The military leadership were opposed to it. And the reason they were is because at that point, the elites, the financial elites were opposed to it. And I went into that, uh, again, a subject for another day, but the way the the business elites bailed on Trump is a very important part of the story. Um, and then three, we had a piece on the role of Christian nationalism, uh, dominionism, a real fanatical cr- variant of uh, evangelical Christianity within the military. Uh, I was interviewing, interviewing Mikey Weinstein, who uh, works on this issue. And he, the, his estimate is it could be as much as a third of the American military now is organized into Christian nationalism. And, and we're ready to support a Trumpian-style coup um, and are now very actively working towards... Uh, I, I asked him, what do, you, what, what do they want? He says, uh, Handmaid's, watch Handmaid's Tale. They want, what's it called, Gideon. They, they want a the- theocratic, authoritarian American state. And that's what they're fighting for. Trump was always just seen as a vehicle as part of that 
process and still is, and they could discard Trump and find some other vehicle. Anyway, they took that down and had nothing, and all, all three of them they took down because they said we were spreading the misinformation that the elections were won by fraud, which of course we never did. Um, we've appealed it and appealed it. And then I got, I know Matt Taibbi. So he wrote a piece where he, he asked YouTube, why did you take these things down? So, oh, they said, oh, we made a mistake. And they reversed it on the Christian one. They reversed it on the, on the second January 6th one, but they wouldn't reverse the first one. So I still have a warning against me. So I don't know. How, uh, the only theory I have is that in order to show that they're not just going after the right wing by cleaning the Trump, pro-Trumpian off YouTube and some of the other social media, they, they deliberately target progressive outlets in order to show how e equal handed this was, even though the progressive outlets were not spreading misinformation and lies. Um, there could be more sinister things. I, I'm still looking and talking to some lawyers about finding some way to sue YouTube because I want to get them into court so we can do have discovery and try to force them to show us their algorithms. Um, I would love in a discovery to make tell us all of the relationships you have with the American intelligence agencies and do they in any way intercede and intervene in your algorithms. Um, I've, I wonder whether uh, I've been flagged personally, uh, because when Julian Assange was arrested, he came out of the Ecuadorian embassy uh, handcuffs carrying my book, which is my interviews with Gore Vidal, called The History of the National Security State. And Ellsberg, after that happened, said, you better be careful, you're really on their radar now. So I'd love to ask YouTube, does the NSA or the FBI have an ability to flag within YouTube's algorithms. Of course, they could have their own flags. Um, anyway, uh, the short of it all is th there's just no way that a, 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 a civilized society would allow the ma major means of public discourse to be privately owned and, then, and have absolutely zero constitutional mm -hmm. rights. There's no such thing as freedom of speech. There's no right to anything because it's private so they're not bound by the constitution um and it's insane uh, you know it's just another feature of you know uh, what's what's been happening in, in the home media and people use that as an excuse they'll actually proudly be like well it's a private corporation can do whatever it wants and it's like well that's the problem don't you feel like that's not something that we should accept that these you know, like the public discourse is dominated by private tyrannies that we have no democratic say in yeah. how it's governed. I mean, these are the public common. They should yeah. be the public common. Yeah, I mean, the, the hypocrisy. and it's, the, This is where, you know, some of the progressives that are now in Congress, and, and some of them are, but instead of focusing too much, certainly the Democrats as a whole have focused so much on censoring pro-Trump shit. They're not nearly focused as mm -hmm. they should be on preventing uh, these big tech from being the arbiters of what's allowable in public discourse. That's the far more dangerous part of, of what's going on. And, and, and they're, they're, if, they're, they're, if they're, they need to be turned into public utilities, it has to be regulated. 
And yeah, there has to, I'm, not, I'm not a free speech absolutist, quote unquote, and, I, and, so, and nor are a lot of other people, including people like Matt Taibbi and others. Uh, you know, yeah, there's limits, but what is the process of defining the limits and who gets to define them? If that isn't, you know, it's, it's a part of a bigger problem of democratizing American life. But there has to be a democratic, transparent process, even if it's through the courts. Like in Canada, we have a hate speech law. But you, you can't just be willy-nilly a tech company say, oh, that's hate speech. Although now there is some pressure to do that, mirroring what's happening in the U.S. But, you know, you get charged with hate speech. You have to go to court. There has to be proof that it was hate speech. Uh, you know, one way or the other, there needs to be a process, but it, it can't just be up to big tech to decide what is considered legitimate speech. No, it's incredibly dangerous. And then when you relegate these people's ideas to a third lane, I mean, another plane of reality, what is that doing? That only silos people off even more, further validates irrational theories or conspiracism that these people have maybe fallen into in the first place. And it's very dangerous. And I would rather know instead of having my reality sanitized for me on behalf of these tech overlords. Um, and, and we've both been we've both fallen victim to this, Paul, and it's not going to get better until the law changes. And so we can only hope it, it all goes back to organizing, right? That's the answer to everything, because there's so many problems and there's one source. And that's our economic system. Um, Paul, we could talk all day. I think that this should be a monthly thing that we do and maybe we can put it up on both of our, um, outlets because it's just really enlightening. Uh, thank you so much for your time, Paul, to go over so many different issues. Uh, and yeah, I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for coming on the Empire. Uh, thank you, Abby. Uh, really appreciate it. And, uh, I hope I didn't drone on too much, but, uh, the uh, what you're doing is really important. This this whole concept of the empire and the focus on U.S. foreign policy, uh, it's it's so critical because uh, I was talking before about the left being siloed. Uh, well, so many of the silos of the left simply don't include foreign policy at all, uh, unless there's some enormous crisis going on. So what what you've been doing is is really critical. Everyone check it out, theanalysis.news. It's an incredible website. You definitely want to get on the mailing list and not miss a single interview that Paul's doing. Thank Thanks you, so Abby. Much, Paul.